0: Hello, welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary. And each uh, time on this podcast, we talk about issues related to ministry leadership, particularly uh, personal challenges that we face as leaders and how we can respond more effectively to them. This is the second part of a two-part podcast on dealing with criticism and personal attack. Uh, the first part was uh, an analysis of criticism, where it comes from and how it can bleed over into personal attack with a little bit of response of what to do in those unique situations. But today, I want to focus uh, more broadly on responding to criticism and critics. I want to do that by again calling your attention to the same story in the Bible that I used in the previous podcast, but if you haven't, weren't able to hear that one, uh, then understand this is the story that we're using as a foundation for the insights in the lesson today. The story is found in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. Uh, the situation is this, David has lost his kingdom, Absalom has taken it, and David is in retreat. He, along with his family and a few close trusted advisors with some soldiers, are in retreat trying to regroup, uh, regather themselves, and find a way to move forward again in recapturing the kingdom and reestablishing the throne. So in the context of that retreat, this is what happened. Second Samuel 16, starting in verse 5. When King David got to Baharim, a man belonging to the house of Saul was just coming out. His name was Shimei, son of Girah, and he was yelling curses as he approached. He threw stones at David and at all the royal servants, the people and the warriors on David's right and left. Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed! You wicked man! The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you became king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you're in trouble because you're a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and remove his head. Well, uh, let's just think for a moment about Abishai. It would be great to have him on our team, wouldn't it? Just to take the heads off our critics. Anyway, then the king replied, Sons of Zeruiah, do we agree on anything? He curses me this way because the Lord told him, Curse David. Therefore, who can say, Why did you do that? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, Look, my own son, my own flesh and blood intends to take my life. How much more now this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse me. The Lord has told him to. Perhaps the Lord will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shimei's curses today. So David and his men proceeded along the road as Shimei was going along the ridge of the hill opposite him. As Shimei went, he cursed David, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. Finally, the king and all the people with him arrived exhausted, so they rested there. Now, as I said uh, in the first part of this podcast, we analyzed uh, the nature of criticism and how it can turn into assault or attack or some kind of criminal activity. But today, we want to focus focus not so much on that, but just on the responding to criticism and to the critics themselves, especially. Uh, the verbal attacks and threats that seem to be part of ministry leadership. Now, the umbrella uh, understanding of how to respond is this statement. Determine to respond, not react to your critics. Determine to respond, not react to your critics. Now, David and Abishai illustrate these two aspects. Abishai is a reactionary. What did he say? David, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Now, Abishai is an interesting character. Uh, About a dozen times in the Old Testament, his name is mentioned. And every time, he's either cutting off someone's head or he's asking for permission to cut off someone's head. Abishai is a reactionary. He hears a criticism, and he goes after the critic. And he goes after the critic with a level of force and response that is far out of proportion to what's just been said or done. So Abishai models being a reactionary. David, on the other hand, makes a response. David responded and said, My son, my own flesh and blood has taken my throne. Then he says, How much more now this Benjaminite? In other words, who cares about this guy? The real problem is not this guy on the hillside screaming curses and even throwing rocks and dirt down on me. My real problem, my real problem is my son Absalom. My son Absalom has taken my throne and getting the throne back is the mission. And nothing, not this critic, not even stopping to take retribution on this critic, nothing can distract us from the tactical importance of accomplishing this retreat successfully so that we can reorganize and figure out a way to get the kingdom back. So Abishai models being a reactionary, David models being a responder. Now, what does being a reactionary or what does reacting to critics looks like look like today? Well, three things. First, when you react, you find yourself trying to explain your actions to a critic. This is what I did. This is what I meant. This is what I said. We also try to justify our motives to the critic. These are the reasons for my actions. These are the reasons for what I did. This is the context of the situation that explains it. And then sometimes if explaining and justifying don't work, then we try to argue with our critics. Uh, can't you see my point? Don't you, can't you see it my way? Don't you understand the different perspective? We try to argue our point until we, until we get uh, uh, someone to agree with us. So, reacting to critics involves explaining and justifying and arguing. But what does responding to critics look like? Well, three things. First, you refocus on your mission. Second, you reflect on the criticism, and third, you allow God and others to ultimately handle your critics. Now, let's get the framework here in our minds. First, we want to respond, not react. Then, once we make a determination, I'm going to respond to my critic. How do you do that? Refocus on your mission, reflect on the criticism, and then allow God and others to handle your critics. Now, let's spend the rest of this podcast talking about uh, these three ways to respond, not react, to critics and criticism, and see if we can understand how to do them more effectively. First, refocus on your mission. As I've already said, Abishai was focused on Shimei. He said, let me go up there and remove his head. Let me take his head off. Let me fix this problem. But David was focused on Absalom. He was focused on reclaiming his kingdom. He said, My son, who has my kingdom, intends to take my life. Uh, What's really at risk here is not this idiot on the hillside who's screaming at me and throwing dirt and dirt clods and rocks and sticks at me. That's really not my problem. Now, it seems like my problem in the moment because it's loud, it's offensive, and it's annoying. But that's really not the problem. The problem is I've lost my kingdom and I might lose my life, we have to stay focused on the mission. Now, it's so vital when you're experiencing criticism that you refocus on your mission. Otherwise, the critic wins. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when the criticism so occupies your thoughts that you lay awake at night thinking about the critic and the criticism, mulling over what's been said, Uh, fantasizing about what you'd like to do or say in response, Uh, thinking about ways to get even, losing sleep so that your following day has a limited amount of productivity, your relationships are strained because you're emotionally frazzled from not sleeping and from spending all that energy thinking and stressing and wondering and worrying about your critic. When that happens, the critic wins. When you find yourself daydreaming and driving in the car, not thinking about the next message you're going to preach or the next person you're going to witness to or the next Bible study you're going to lead, when you find yourself riding in the car and all you can think about is the critic and the criticism and what they've said to you and why and how, how much it hurts and what you'd like to do to get even and all of that, the critic wins. And then when you go into a, a, a meeting at your church or your ministry organization, and you start the meeting by talking about what the critics are saying about you or about your organization, and you give important time of people in a room who are supposed to be strategizing about accomplishing your mission, you give that important time to your critics and to criticism, then the critic wins. So in every case that I'm describing, uh, the critic is not even in the room, the critic's not even present in the situation, but yet they're controlling your sleep, They're controlling your thoughts. They're controlling your agendas. And as long as they're doing that, the critic wins. So how do you focus on your mission both personally and in organizational leadership? Well, you do it personally, I think, by intentionally refocusing on tasks that relate to accomplishing your mission. So, for me, I spend time making a short list. What do I need to do today that will advance the mission of our school? Now, while the bloggers may be blogging and Twitter may be tweeting and people may be criticizing and, uh, and, and, and uh, immediate reaction might be uh, a release, none of that's really going to advance the mission of our school. So what do I need to do today that will advance our mission? And I actually, uh, when I'm facing criticism, actually sit down and make this kind of list. I need to make this phone call. I need to prepare this material. I need to make this visit. I need to plan this meeting. These are the things that need to happen to advance our mission, not reacting to this critic. And so the way I personally refocus is by making a task list so that I don't spend my day thinking, mulling, wondering, or worrying about what the critic is saying. Instead, I say, what do I need to focus my attention on? Where do I need to put my actions so that my mind my, and my hands are both preoccupied with, pr- with purposeful work that will move us forward? That's how you personally refocus on your mission. But now, how do you also do it as an organizational leader? Well, let me give you two suggestions. First, Uh, Control the agenda of meetings. If you're uh, leading a meeting, certainly uh, control the agenda by eliminating the critics from the meeting. I cannot remember on uh, more than two or three occasions in my 13 years as a seminary president that I ever put the criticism that we were receiving for any reason on the agenda of a meeting when I meet with the vice presidents. That's just not the place for it. Uh, now it would be a safe place to talk about the critics because these vice presidents—they—they they love me. We work well together. We—we we, we care about each other, and so it would be fun to go in there and say, "Oh, this is what somebody's saying about me. This is what someone's saying about the school. Aren't they an idiot? They don't know what they're talking about. I can't believe they would do this." But when I do that, I'm wasting precious energy and precious time with my most significant leadership that should be devoted. To fulfilling the mission of our school, instead we're frittering it away, talking about the critics and what they're saying about us. <clears throat> the best way to, or the first way to uh, refocus organizationally in the face of criticism is to fo- control the agenda of meetings and make sure that what's on your agenda are tasks, problems, projects processes that relate directly to accomplishing your mission. So at our place, uh, we want to talk about growing enrollment, raising more money, improving academic programs, uh, all the things that relate directly to our core mission. That's what we want to focus on in our meetings. And then, not only control the agenda of meetings, but control what you communicate and what you allow people to hear you talking about. Now. Um, it's important to control what you say in meetings, but it's also important to control what you say in writing and speaking and casual conversations. If you're in an elders meeting in your church and you have a conversation in the meeting about your mission and you keep that focus there, but then you go out in the hallway as soon as the meeting is over and vent about all the critics that you're recei- that criticism you're receiving or, 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 go- or talk about the people who are criticizing you uh, or your church, What do your elders think? Well, they think, well, that must have been on his mind the whole meeting, and now he's really letting us know what he's really been thinking about. So you say, well, wow, if you can't talk about the critics in meetings and you can't talk about um, critics when you communicate, even in hallway conversations, how does a leader process and deal with these kinds of issues? Well, really, two ways. First, you deal with them with God. talking to him about them, praying through the issues that you're feeling and letting him know about the pain that these critics are causing you. And then second, get a trusted confidant, a peer or a mentor, someone who's outside your organization, who knows you, who cares about you, but that also is a person you can trust and confide in and do your venting there. Uh, Do it there, not on Twitter, not on a blog, not on Facebook, not in a hallway conversation, certainly never in a sermon or anything that's a formal means of communication. But find a person privately that you can say, this is what's happening to me, this is what they're saying about me, this is how it's hurting me, Uh, this is why it's making me angry. Find someone like that that you can share the uh, aspects of criticism that need to be vented or voiced or dealt with in that regard, but be careful where you do that lest you confuse people in thinking about what's really occupying your mind and where you're really where your mission or focus uh, really is. So um, how do you refocus on your mission? Personally, make a list of tasks that relate directly to your mission and focus your hands and your mind on those tasks, not on reacting or responding or reacting to or in some way engaging your critics. And then, Uh, organizationally control these two things, the agenda of meetings and the communication that comes from you as a leader. Let people hear you in both those contexts uh, talking about mission, 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 and what the organization needs to do to accomplish that. And then if you need an outlet to vent, uh, to talk about, or to otherwise process what critics are saying to you, get that person to be from outside your organization, a mentor, a trusted friend, a peer, someone that you can go to and have that kind of conversation. The second way to respond instead of react to critics is to reflect on the criticism. Now, this is where I take a turn in this presentation to beginning to talk about criticism in a more positive light. In this passage I read, David recognized that God had allowed this criticism. He said, the Lord has told him to say this. Perhaps the Lord has told him to curse me. David uh, believe that God had allowed this to happen to him. And then he expected, David did, he expected God to take notice and intervene. He said, perhaps the Lord will see what's happening to me and restore goodness to me this day. So it's important to understand that David saw in Shimei a critic that God had uh, at least allowed, if not caused, to attack him And that in the context of this, perhaps some good could come. He said, perhaps the Lord will do good for me because of this day. Now, this means, and this is a hard sentence for me to say, and it will be a hard sentence for you to hear. But this means that God has allowed your criticism. Now, that's hard to hear. But God has either allowed or caused whatever comes into our lives. God has allowed our criticism. Why? Well, it's because of something that I call the Joseph principle from Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. You remember that story where Joseph was facing his brothers. uh, All the secrets and sins had been revealed and they feared for their lives. And Joseph said these words to his brothers, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. This is the great miracle and promise and ability that only God has. He can take anything that happens to us and turn it for good. Now that doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is good. That is certainly not true. But God has a capacity to turn everything that happens to us for our good. Now, a few uh, years ago, I was sharing something about this in a chapel message. When I finished, one of my favorite students came up and said, Dr. Orge, uh, I can can simplify your message. I said, well, I'd like that. He said, "Eh, you said that criticism is often good and that good can come out of it. Are uh, you saying criticism is not good, but that good can come out of it. And I said, yes, that's that's what I said. And then he said, you spent a long time explaining that. I said, yes, I did. He said, well, let me explain it to you simply this way. He said, being criticized is like having a chicken thrown in your face. <laughs> I said, it's like what? He said, being criticized is like having a chicken thrown in your face. It comes at you scratching and clawing and, and uh, pecking and flapping. And then he smiled and said, but if you'll skin that chicken and cook it you'll find a chicken dinner in there somewhere now we both laughed good story chicken dinner in there somewhere but really that's what I'm trying to say when criticism comes at you it comes at you in all the wrong ways and it's hurtful and it's not good but somehow God has the capacity to bring good out of that let me give you some examples of what I mean One way that being criticized can help you is that it can make you tougher. Sometimes Christian leaders just need to grow a little thicker skin and recognize that these problems that we think are oh so bad when people speak evil against us or say bad things about us are really not that difficult. I mean, when people in our world are being martyred for our faith and we're complaining because a deacon or a Sunday school teacher got upset with our sermon, really? We just need to toughen up a little bit. A few uh, years ago, a young graduate called and said, I'm facing a difficult situation. Um, I've got to fire someone for the first time in my life. Now, this was a a young woman who had uh, had a lot of leadership promise and was just in her first responsibility and was just having to make this first decision to terminate another person. She said, what do I do? And I kind of jokingly said, well, the first thing you do is you put on your big girl pants. I said, you're just going to have to grow up a little bit today. You're going to have to realize this is what leaders have to do. They have to make hard decisions. And when those hard decisions are made, they sometimes get really negative reaction, really negative criticism. They get attacked for them. But you're just going to have to put on your big girl pants. You're going to have to grow up today and realize that this is what leaders do. Sometimes criticism just makes us tougher. It helps us grow up a little bit. gives us some perspective and helps us understand that what we're hearing and what's being said about us is really not all that bad in the grand scheme of what's happening in our world. A second way that criticism can help us is that it can change us at the point of criticism. A number of years ago my in my first church I really struggled with my relational abilities. I, I wasn't good with people and it was really a debilitating problem for me in my early ministry years and so Uh, To my shock, my mother came to visit our church one time and uh, said these words to me. Now, to put it in context, my mother was not a church-going woman at that time in her life. She wasn't even a professing Christian. So she came to visit our church, and uh, first time she'd ever been to a church where I was a pastor or where I was the minister leader, she came over after lunch to our house, and she said, uh, Jeff, you're a pretty good speaker. And I said, well, thank you, Mom. And then she said these exact words in her West Texas way. She said, But if you don't learn how to work with people, you're never going to make a pastor. Well, those words cut me to my heart because other people had been saying the same thing to me, but I had been rejecting all of their criticism and saying that they didn't know what they were talking about, they didn't understand my situation, they weren't qualified to say that to me, they were just being mean-spirited, they were being rebellious, they weren't very spiritual. I had all these reasons to justify why why people were critiquing me for having poor interpersonal skills. But now my mom was saying the very same thing to me. And honestly, there rose up within me some anger, and I I remember thinking, how dare you say that to me? How dare you come to my church for the first time and say that to me? You don't even know what a pastor does. You don't even know what ministry is about. You don't even participate in a church. How can you come to my home, to my table, and say that to me? That's what sort of rose up within me. But then as soon as those thoughts washed through my mind, another wave of thoughts came. Jeff, this is your mother. She loves you. She only wants the best for you. She's never said anything to you in in her life that would intentionally hurt you. Why don't you pay attention? For the first time in my life, I started paying attention to the fact that maybe everyone else was right and I was the one that was wrong. Maybe my interpersonal skills really were so poor that they were undermining my effectiveness as a ministry leader. And maybe, just maybe, all this criticism that I was enduring was something that God was allowing for my good. And then a third way is that criticism can help you to learn to love your enemies. You know, Jesus said you're going to have enemies. Uh, He wouldn't have said you have to love them if you weren't going to have some. I think about an incident that happened a few years ago. I made a presentation at the Northwest Baptist Convention of my vision for the future, and a man got up and spoke against me. His name was Lee. He was an elderly pastor in our convention. He was a good man, but he just really felt like I was way off base in my vision for the future. And he got up and made some very pointed statements about it. In fact, he made what was later called the Blue Bridge speech. It was so infamous in our convention. He, he talked about coming into our city for the convention across a blue bridge that had guardrails. And on that gu- and those guardrails were the Word of God and Baptist tradition. And we needed to stay within the, the guardrails of both our heritage and our, and our commitment to Scripture. Well, he was voted down and my vision statement passed. And afterwards I went to him and said, Lee, if I ever get off that bridge, I want you to to call me on it because I want to stay between the guardrails of Baptist heritage and the word of God. Well, a few weeks later he called me and I thought that didn't take long, <laughs> but he didn't call to criticize. He called and said, would you come and preach at my church? I'm pastoring a little church in a, that I've started and in my retirement years, and I'd like for you to come out. So I went out and preached for him and and we had a good conversation that day about ministry and about mission and about evangelism and about what we were trying to do to win the loss to Christ in the Pacific Northwest. And I thought that was the end of the story. Well, some years went by, and I came to, go to Gateway as president, went back to Portland to preach at a missions banquet. And looked out there in the, in the front table of that banquet was uh, this Pastor Lee. And afterwards, uh, it was obvious he wanted to stay around and talk. He 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 just waited. Now, by this time, he's, he's well up in his 80s. He's on a, on a walking with a walker, and, and, and it's been quite an effort, I can tell, for him to even come to the banquet. So I made my way over to him. I said, Lee, I want to thank you for coming out tonight. And he said with a smile, well, I came, but uh, I enjoyed your message, but I didn't really come to hear you preach. I thought, well, okay. He laughed. He said, no, I, I came for another reason. And then his face got really serious. And he pushed himself up as tall as he could on his walker, and he said, I've come to ask you to forgive me. I said, well, for what? He said, the Blue Bridge speech. I said, Lee, we put that behind us a long time ago. He said, no, not really. He said, I have never really apologized to you for what I did that day. And I've come tonight to ask you to forgive me for that speech. And I said, well, Lee, I I thought we handled this a long time ago, but I'll forgive you tonight. If that's what you've asked me to do i definitely forgive you he said well i appreciate that you've said it again i have thought about it a long time and and i know i've never really officially or formally asked you to do this and i i've never never been able to get past it so thank you for forgiving me and thank you for for ministering and loving and caring for me all these years while we were together here in the northwest you know i learned a lesson that night if you love your enemies if you just respond as best you can to them, and then allow God some time to work in their hearts, sometimes miraculous things happen. God allows some critics, so you can learn to love your enemies, and then finally you can learn patience. Uh, sometimes critics are just persistent, aren't they? And you just have to learn to stay with them over the long haul. I had one woman in my early pastorate that uh, criticized me a lot and regularly and frequently. <laughs> And I just tried to stay with her and love her and care for her and do the best I could as her pastor because I realized she was a deeply troubled person who'd been hurt by many people in her lifetime. And I realized that part of my responsibility to her was just what the Bible calls forbearance, just bearing up under her her, her uh, criticism, recognizing that I really wasn't the object of it. I was just a person that, uh, that she felt she could be herself around and say things to that probably she shouldn't say, but... They just came out, and I knew that I could love her and care for her and and confront her and try to help her grow, but I also knew that part of my responsibility was just bearing up under what she had to say to me as a part of my pastoral leadership in her life. Well, that's how you reflect on the criticism. Ask God, why have you allowed this, and what is in this that might be good for me? There's a chicken dinner in there somewhere. For me, being criticized has helped make me tougher. It's changed me at the point of criticism. It's helped me to learn to love enemies. It's helped me to practice forbearance, just understanding that some people uh, are just going to have to be bared with and sustained over a lifetime of ministry leadership because of the pain they've endured from other people. And then finally, the last way you respond is allowing God and others to handle your critics. Now, I'll just mention these passages, but I'd encourage you to go back and read them in detail. In 2 Samuel 19, Beginning in verse 16 through 23, David does return to his kingdom. And when he does, Shimei comes down to meet him. And uh, he says, oh, David, thank you for coming back. I I, I love you. I honor you. I serve you. And Abishai says, are you believing this nonsense? Uh, Let me cut off his head. Why should he be allowed to say that to the king today? And then David says an interesting thing. He says to Shimei, or to Abishai, no one needs to die today to prove that I'm king. And then he says, Shimei, you will not die today. No one needs to die to establish my kingdom. He allowed him to live that day. But then, fast-forwarding to 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and then verses 36 through 46. We reach the end of David's life, and he calls Solomon in for the final words. And on his deathbed, David says to Solomon, watch Shimei. Watch him. You'll know how to deal with him, but be careful with him because he's a dangerous critic. Well, David died. Solomon called Shimei in and said, I know what you did to my father, and I basically don't trust you. And then he said, you may live in a house here in Jerusalem, but if you ever leave this city, I will kill you. But it won't be a retribution. It'll be simply consequences that come on your own head because of your own decision. In other words, he placed Shimei under house arrest. He said, build a house, stay here where I can watch you, have complete freedom as long as you stay there. But when you leave the city, I'm going to assume the worst about you, and I will, I will uh, exercise the consequences of your choice, and I will take your life. Well, some time went by. Some of Shimei's servants escaped. He went to retrieve them. When he arrived back in town, Solomon called him forward and said, you know what you did to my my father when he was king? And now you've disobeyed me directly as your king. I do not trust you. And he took his life that day. This story teaches us that God holds everyone accountable. You know, in the short run, it may not seem that everyone is being held accountable. You may say, well, I know people who are criticizing me and, and they're getting away with it. Well, they may. And in the short run, they may. But in the long run, God always makes things right. A number of years ago, my wife had a critic. Uh, a, pretty, a pretty strong critic who attacked her verbally and then when we ended that relationship, wrote her letters that continued the criticism. Well, eventually we moved away. <clears throat> the criticism all revolved around my wife's inadequacies as a pastor's wife. We moved away from the church, went on to other settings, and then uh, that woman, in a tw- twist that only God could have orchestrated, her husband was called to ministry and became a pastor, and she became a pastor's wife. Some time went by, and then she wrote my wife another letter. When we received it, we saw the return address and the handwriting, and I said to my wife, do we even want to open this? She said, yeah, we need to. We're glad we did because we opened the letter, and this is what it said. When I was in your church years ago, I was very critical of you. But now these years later, I've become a pastor's wife, and I realized what the challenges are to that responsibility. And I've had a number of people in the church where I'm now serving that have criticized me, and I know now what I did to you was wrong. And I'm writing to ask you to forgive me and to make right what I did to you those years ago. You know, God has a way of making things right. He put this person in a situation where she would be disciplined for what she had done to my wife and, in fact, used the same kind of circumstances uh, that she was criticizing my wife uh, for not fulfilling appropriately in her life to bring about this change. God has a way. God has a way of making things right. And you say, but sometimes they don't seem to be made right. Not necessarily in this life will they all be made right, but don't forget, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Nothing, nothing escapes uh, God's judgment and God's accountability, and you can count on him for that. So how do you respond to critics? Well, you respond by refocusing on your mission, reflecting on the criticism and learning from it, And then allowing God and others to ultimately handle your critics. Moving on from them and recognizing that you don't have to get even or make everything right. Don't be a reactionary. That's like Abishai. Be a responder. Be like David. Thanks for listening today. Hey, lead on. That's what the podcast is all about.